As a nation, Israel began with high hopes. From one man, Jacob, came twelve sons whose descendants were led from slavery in Egypt to a new life in Canaan, a fertile land between the Euphrates River and the Mediterranean Sea. Here they were allocated tribal land, given a place to worship and eventually a king. It was a bumpy ride, but by the time of Israel's third monarch, Solomon, the nation was enjoying a golden age where the worship of God was front and central in daily life, a fabulous stone temple dominating the Jerusalem skyline. By the time of King Hoshea, Israel has long since split in two. Despite dire warnings from numerous prophets, among them the miracle-working Elijah and Elisha, the ten tribal territories which still called themselves Israel had succumbed to the pagan worship of their Canaanite neighbours. As they were about to enter their new homeland back in the book of Deuteronomy, the Israelites were warned by Moses who made terrifying predictions of what would befall them should they turn away from God. Now judgment is coming and Israel is staring down the barrel of that horror. My name is Chaz Bayfield and this is Holy Bible episode 90. I know where you are. Episode 90. It feels like a bit of a milestone. I hope you like the pace of these podcasts. Let others do the Bible in a year. For me, that feels like an Ironman triathlon. Why rush? Let's do the Bible in three years. More if we need to. I like to see this as a series of day trips for people who aren't especially religious, but who feel that the Bible is too important a book to know so little about. So, buckle up. The bus is about to leave. We're in the second book of Kings and the whole house of cards is about to come tumbling down. There's only so long that the northern kingdom of Israel can hold out against the Assyrian threat and the Bible puts its eventual annihilation down to its almost complete abandonment of God. To his credit, Hoshea is by no means the most evil king to rule Israel. In fact, he is the only king other than Jehu who the writer doesn't compare to the northern kingdom's godless first king, Jeroboam. Hoshea is not dealt the best set of cards, and it's a wonder why he assumed that he could do a better job than Pekah, the king he assassinated in order to rule the country himself. Israel's new king is forced to pay off Tiglath-Pileser's son and successor, Shalmaneser V of Assyria, to prevent a full-on invasion of his country. Unhappy with this, Hoshea begins hedging his bets and sends envoys south to Egypt's king in the possible hope that an alliance with Egypt might protect him. Brazenly, he then stops his direct debits to Assyria. Shalmaneser's response is less than understanding. The Assyrian king seizes Hoshea and imprisons him. He then initiates a crippling three-year siege of Israel's capital city, Samaria, which eventually falls and is overrun. Despite the account of Israel's fall in the second book of Kings and on the tablets known as the Babylonian Chronicles, 
Shalmaneser's successor, Sargon II, claims that he is the king who overthrew Samaria. It's possible that Shalmaneser began the siege, which Sargon then completed. The end result is the same. The population of Israel is duly deported and resettled in lands controlled by Shalmaneser, many of which are in modern-day Iran. Having dealt relatively succinctly and dispassionately with Israel's utter decimation, the writer of the Second Book of Kings now draws breath and looks back at the nation's monarchy, summarising the main reasons why he believes the nation has fallen apart completely. The single most compelling conclusion the book draws for God's apparent rejection of his chosen people is that they have rejected him. Instead of remaining loyal to him, they have decided to worship the gods of the nations who he helped them defeat when they first settled in Canaan. They allowed their land to be riddled with the pagan shrines known as high places. They set up sacred stones, poles, burned incense and worshipped idols, particularly the two golden bulls set up by their first king after the split with Judah, Jeroboam. They also ignored the pleas of numerous prophets to fall back in line, which readers are told is the reason why God is so angry. Rather than focus their attention on God, the people have acted as if the idols which the book describes as worthless have godlike powers. For this, the writer tells them that they have become worthless to God. They have followed the religious practices of their neighbours, something which their law forbids them to do making golden calves and sacred poles, bowing down to the stars and worshipping Baal did not help their case, the Israelites are told. Add to this child sacrifice, divination and belief in omens, and it's a pretty full list of do-nots. According to the writer, it should be seen as no surprise that God has called time on their nation. The book may blame the split between Israel and Judah on the people's godlessness, but he singles out Judah as the only tribe that remains loyal to God. However, Judah's people are seen as no angels either, and are equally to blame for their nation being ripped in two. From the moment that Israel and Judah split, it has been a downhill trajectory for the tribes to the north. These never recovered from the patterns of pagan worship set in place by Jeroboam, yet at the same time the tribes of Judah have become just as agnostic. Readers are told that God handed both nations over to plunderers, nations with powerful armies and no respect for Israel, Judah or their God. The blame is laid squarely at the feet of Jeroboam, who set in place a blueprint for other kings of Israel to follow, and who is seen as tempting his people away from God. It appears that the only way God can stop his ongoing rejection is to be the great rejecter. This is why he is credited with bringing an end to Israel and dispersing its people throughout the nations governed by Assyria. After the Assyrians' attack, God's promised land effectively ceases to exist, and the writer of the second book of Kings describes the situation on the ground spiritually. After the fall of Samaria, the land formerly known as Israel is repopulated with people from Babylon and other Assyrian territories, none of whom worship God. 
Readers are told that God sends lions to savage some of these people. And when reports come back to Assyria's king, possibly now Sargon II, he sends an exiled Israelite priest to Bethel to calm things down. His thinking is that his people who are now living in Israel need someone who understands the, inverted commas, God of the land to make sure that bad things stop happening there. Meanwhile, every ethnic group brings their own style of worship to the newly resettled Israel, making good use of the ready-made high place worship sites. God must now share airtime with numerous other deities. Readers are introduced to Sukkoth Benoth, Nergal, Ashima, Nipaz, Tartak, Adramelech and Anamelech, who the locals worship alongside Israel's God. Sacrificing children in fires is not uncommon and the dilution of God worship and the demotion of God to just another local deity is the prime reason that the word Samaritan remains an insult for the rest of the Bible. The writer explains that the absence of single-minded God worship falls foul of numerous rules and regulations given to the Jews' ancestors, notably the Lord that forbids them to worship other gods. The only God they are allowed to worship is God himself. In their scriptures, the Israelites are told that God brought them out of Egypt in a dramatic display of power and made them a promise that he would rescue them from their enemies. Their side of the deal was to not even pay lip service to other gods, let alone bow down to them. However, no lessons appear to have been learned, and at the time the author of the Book of Kings is writing, the Jews in the north continue to serve the same foreign gods as their predecessors. Now that Israel has fallen, Judah is left alone to carry the flag of God-worship. And with the northern kingdom in ruins, Assyria poses a very real threat to the kingdom to the south. Judah needs a ruler who can shore up his nation against the overwhelming might of the invaders. Fortunately for them, the son of King Ahaz is decent, honourable and one of the most able kings ever to lead his country. Hezekiah is also a fan of God. He takes over the throne of the southern kingdom after the death of his father and proceeds to rule Judah like a second David. He finally destroys all the altars that have been set up to pagan gods, ripping down Asherah poles and smashing the bronze snake made centuries earlier by Moses, as people have now begun worshipping it. According to the writer, Hezekiah's faith in God is rewarded with military success wherever he goes. The king refuses to submit to Assyria, defeats the Philistines and maintains his country's independence even after Hoshea's northern kingdom falls to the Assyrians six years into his reign. Assyria itself sees various regime changes during this time. Tiglath-Pileser dies and is replaced by his son Shalmaneser V, the man credited with defeating Israel. Shalmaneser is possibly overthrown by his half-brother Sargon II, who some believe is the goal-hanger who tips the ball across the line when it comes to the final conquest of the Northern Kingdom. On his death, Sargon's son Sennacherib becomes Assyria's fourth king in 22 years. 
Once Sennacherib is established on the throne, he sets off to punish the rebels who have taken advantage of the regime change after the death of Sargon. Sennacherib's onslaught begins with a brutal attack on Babylon, a city which his father had allowed to keep its own identity despite being part of the empire. According to the Assyrian account of Sennacherib's reign, he then trounces the Egyptians before turning his attention to Judah, which to him is just another small kingdom that should fall before his mighty war machine. Before describing Sennacherib's attack on Judah, the writer of the second book of Kings recaps Israel's fall one more time and the reasons why he believes this happened. As before, his view is that Israel's people broke the agreement to follow God and obey his laws in return for divine protection. Assyria's land grab continues and 14 years into Hezekiah's reign, the army captures all Judah's fortified cities. Hezekiah's response is to send a humble message to Sennacherib, who was attacking the heavily fortified city of Lachish, apologising for any wrong he has done and offering to pay whatever it takes for Assyria to retreat. It's a costly exercise. Hezekiah has to empty the temple and palace treasuries of 11 tonnes of precious metal and even strips the gold from the temple doors to make the payment. The whole exercise is as futile as it is expensive. Sennacherib appears intent on overrunning Judah completely and after the assault on Lachish, Assyria's three most senior generals arrive at the outskirts of Jerusalem with an army. What happens next is told three times in the Bible, here in the second book of Kings, again in the books of Chronicles, and lastly in Isaiah's eyewitness account. Sennacherib's generals are met by three of Hezekiah's senior advisers, and the message is that Judah is not to rely on Egypt, as the Egyptians are like a splintered reed. The suggestion is that they will not only break when leaned on for support, but will also injure whoever grabs hold of them. Sennacherib sees Hezekiah's destruction of pagan altars and his focus on God as reckless. To him, many gods equal safety in numbers, and shows a complete misunderstanding of the unique arrangement that appears to be in place between Israel and God. Instead, Judas King is to accept an offer of 2,000 horses in exchange for loyalty to Assyria. The generals tell Hezekiah that he is unlikely to defend himself successfully against even one of Sennacherib's lowliest military commanders, even with Egypt's backup. The generals throw in an additional and unexpected point. Sennacherib is acting on divine orders. God himself has told him to attack Judah and destroy it. Hezekiah's men urge their visitors to speak in Aramaic rather than Hebrew, so that others in earshot don't overhear. Aramaic is the language of diplomacy in the Near East during Hezekiah's reign and is only spoken by more educated people, while Hebrew is the day-to-day vernacular. Everyone nearby can understand it, and Hezekiah's men don't want the city to erupt in panic. Unmoved, the Assyrians continue in Hebrew, telling them that Sennacherib's message is for everyone, 
and the people should know that they will soon be eating their own dung and drinking their own urine. The army commander then shouts in Hebrew so that everyone in Jerusalem knows that Hezekiah is deceiving them. His God cannot protect them against Assyria's king, he tells them. Jerusalem's only option is to capitulate, and if they do, they will enjoy wine and figs, bread and honey, olive oil and fresh water, all the good things in life, but none of them available to them in a city under siege. It's that or certain death, they say. After all, what nation has ever withheld the Assyrian onslaught? In the Assyrians' view, the gods of all the nations which they have overrun have failed to offer their people any protection, so why should Judah's god be any different? No one responds, as Hezekiah has commanded his people to listen but not speak. The encounter is hugely distressing for his representatives, who tear their clothes in anguish before bringing the news back to their king. Judah's independence hangs in the balance, and what Hezekiah does next will decide whether God's country lives on or becomes yet another vassal state of Sennacherib's all-conquering empire. Distraught, Hezekiah immediately dons his sackcloth and runs to the temple to see if God has any suggestions for what to do with the giant military threat at his gates. Fortunately for Judah's king, he has the ear of one of the Bible's wisest prophets, Isaiah. He immediately dispatches two of his most senior advisers and a cohort of priests to tell the holy man that Judah's strength is spent. The nation is like a woman in labour who has no energy left to push out her child. His hope is that God has heard how Sennacherib's army chief has ridiculed him and that he will respond accordingly. Hezekiah wants Isaiah to pray for their nation and that at the very least a small remnant of believers will survive to carry the torch. Incredibly, Isaiah is as relaxed as Hezekiah and his officials are frantic. He assures them that they are safe. God sees Sennacherib's generals as underlings whose threats should not be taken seriously, he says. The prophet tells the envoys that Assyria's king will receive news that will divert him from Jerusalem. He will return home to Assyria, where he will be killed. Meanwhile, Sennacherib's generals have returned to their king, who is continuing his rampage against Judah's fortified cities. As promised by Isaiah, intel arrives, telling Assyria's king that the nation of Cush, modern-day Sudan, is advancing against him from the south, and he withdraws from attacking the city of Libna in western Judah. Before he heads off to deal with this new threat, though, Sennacherib sends messengers to Hezekiah, repeating his warning that no deity is powerful enough to withstand him, and that Judah will be yet another country whose god is too weak to protect it from Assyria. The men who spoke to Sennacherib's generals have written down the minutes of the encounter and handed them to Hezekiah, who takes them to the temple and spreads them out, possibly on the altar. The king reminds God of how powerful a god he is, and that he should listen to the insults that Sennacherib is throwing his way. Hezekiah is fully aware that the gods of all the other nations which the Assyrians have trampled underfoot have been thrown into the fire, but these gods were man-made. In contrast, God is seen as uniquely powerful, 
and the king prays that he uses this power to demonstrate to all nations why he is the only God worth worshipping. Isaiah reassures Hezekiah that God has heard him and is fully aware of what is going on. Jerusalem despises and mocks Sennacherib and the city will toss its hair as the Assyrians flee, he says. They have dared to raise their voice against the God of Israel and ridiculed him. They may boast of their achievements, the depth and scale of their invasion, the kings and princes who they have killed and the prime real estate which they have claimed as their own. They may pride themselves in digging new wells where old ones have been blocked up and advancing swiftly across the canals and streams of the Nile Delta as if it were all dry land. But the prophet assures his king that none of this means anything to God. For God, Sennacherib appears to be a mere instrument, and Isaiah tells Hezekiah that the destruction of Judah's cities was all preordained. It may be the case that Judah's people are now powerless and humiliated, the prophet says. It may be that they are like vulnerable shoots in a field or grass growing on a roof that is easily scorched, but Assyria better beware. In one of the most ominous threats in the Bible, Isaiah shares what he believes God has told him. I know where you are and when you come and go, God tells Sennacherib. The enemy king's rage and his insults have reached God's ears. Kings of Babylon and Assyria placed rings through the noses of their more distinguished prisoners and led them with ropes passed through the rings. For his slurs, a hook will be placed in Sennacherib's nose and he will be led like a pack animal back to Assyria. Holy Bible is written and produced by me, Chas Bayfield, with original music by Michael Old and John Hawkins Music. Cover art is by Lisa Goff. Do feel free to send any comments or feedback to contact at holybible.com. And if you like reading as much as you like listening, why not download Snakes and Angels, a secular walk through the first five books of the Bible? You can find it at Amazon. Thanks for listening. See you next time.